Hello and welcome to the Harvard EdCast, a series of conversations with thought leaders in the field of education from across the country and around the world. I'm your host, Matt Weber, and today we have brought in one of the most notable researchers on educational assessment to help us understand something we've all been through, agonized over, celebrated or lamented, and that is school testing. It's been in the news lately, scandals across the U.S. bring to light broader, bigger issues with this means of assessing, and just what is being assessed, how are we preparing for such tests. Our guest is the Shattuck Professor of Education at the Harvard Ed School, Dan Koritz. Welcome to the EdCast. Glad to be with you. Where do we start to see issues with test prep? Where does that start to go wrong in terms of what grade, at what level? Well, it's now virtually all grades. It started to go bad, I think, in the late 1970s and early 1980s when pressure to raise test scores began to, to move up, and it's been ratcheted up ever since. And what that's induced is in some cases good behavior. There are cases where people have been have been uh, pushed into working harder and finding better ways to teach, but it has led to wholesale inappropriate test preparation and in the extreme cases to cheating. What do you mean by wholesale inappropriate test prep? Well, the test is generally fairly short. A typical state test might have a kid sitting down at a desk to work on mathematics for 90 minutes, which is a very short amount of time. And the small number of tasks the student does during that time are supposed to represent, for example, all of eighth grade mathematics. The problem arises when people say the test is what's important, therefore we should instruct kids in a way that raises their scores on that particular test, focus, focusing on those particular items. And when they do that, the rest of what the test is supposed to represent doesn't get learned. And in some cases, even the things that are on the test aren't learned because kids are coached in ways to answer specific questions. So what do you mean by they're coached in certain ways? And is that, is that something the teacher's doing wrong, or is that coming from the administration? Well, it comes from everywhere. And it wasn't that long ago that this was considered inappropriate. Now we have states and districts uh, urging teachers to do it. It takes lots of forms. A common one is to tell teachers uh, which of the standards, in a, uh, which of a set of state standards are likely to be tested and which not, which are emphasized in the test and which not which is just a, a way to help teachers ignore things that aren't going to be tested. But it can also be, be um, more detailed than that. Often teachers will focus with help, in some cases their are test prep materials that help them do this, on the specific details of a particular test vendor's questions. So a kid may look like he actually knows how to do the Pythagorean theorem, but in fact he's already been told, as has happened here in Massachusetts, that the answer is usually the rate from the ratio 3, 4, 5, or, or um, uh, 5, 12, 13, you don't actually even have to memorize the formula. Uh, what happens is that scores go up. We've seen this for, for more than 20 years. Scores go up often dramatically, but if you simply substitute another test, you find out that kids actually haven't learned much. Interesting. Now, are there certain subjects that are sort of off the hook when it comes to testing, uh, say, art? Well, for now, not for long. Uh, what's happened in the last 10 years or so is that subjects that aren't tested, like art, have gotten short shrift. And in many districts, the amount of time put into those subjects has, has decreased, sometimes radically, music. Uh, now, with the agreement uh, um, between the states and the federal government, many of the states and federal government, to evaluate teachers based on test scores, states are scrambling to figure out how to introduce testing in those subjects as well so that they'll have some way to get, say, a value-added measure for art teachers or, who knows, even PE teachers, perhaps. What is America's obsession with testing? Is this systemic to America, or is this something across the world that people are so obsessed with quantitative representation of learning? Well, we're unique in some ways, but not in others. There are lots of countries that have high-stakes testing. Singapore, for instance, is an example. 
Uh, Singapore has a number of tests, not, not every grade, but there are a number of tests, for example, one at the end of sixth grade, that are very high stakes for kids. They determine what kind of school the kid will go into next. Uh, that's not rare. It's common across East Asia. It used to be common in, in parts of Europe. Uh, what is extremely rare, uh, in fact, no country does it, to my knowledge, does it to the degree we do, is using a large volume of testing to directly evaluate schools and now teachers. Uh, England came close to this some years ago, but in fact, they backed off a great deal. So we're an outlier. How, how dangerous is test-based merit pay for teachers? Well, I think it depends on how it's done. If uh, merit pay is based primarily on the kinds of tests we have now, I think it's very, very bad because it will even further ratchet up the pressure to teach to the specific tests, which are fairly small. If test-based accountability is used as a part of merit pay, a modest part, then it may well turn out to be uh, productive in the long run, but we don't know. We're, we're marching wholesale into this without having good evaluations of how people respond in the classroom. Is there a particular best practice and test model out there? Is there a particular state that's doing, that's using tests correctly, or a school district, or even a country that, that sees the necessity of tests, but doesn't overemphasize their need? Well, there are lots of countries that uh, emphasize testing less. The Netherlands, for example, has well-established uh, testing that's used in conjunction with school inspections. Uh, in this country, it's very hard to find examples that aren't extreme because the, the federal law now requires states to be extreme or they give up their Title I money. Uh, some states considered that, actually, when No Child Left Behind was passed. Uh, there's another problem here, however, which is that we have for, for 40 years now, uh, we being the policy community, I, I, I shouldn't say we because I didn't do it, uh, people have dreamed up performance-based accountability systems for schools and just drop them onto schools. Uh, there has never been, since the 1970s when this began, any good evidence that the particular strategy that was going to be tried next would work, or even that, would, that it would avoid harm. And worse yet, often when the, these programs are put into place, we don't monitor them carefully. I, I find this just ethically appalling. We wouldn't do this uh, with medication. We wouldn't do it to adults, for that matter. What we ought to be doing is trying out different accountability mechanisms very carefully, evaluating them rigorously, and then deciding which, one has the, uh, which ones have the best mix of positive and negative effects. We still haven't done that in this country, and we're not doing it in the current round of reforms either. Right now we're sort of talking about testing as a whole, as a system that's maybe not so accurate. How does this affect the children? What does a test do to a child, even at a younger age, too, a preschooler who has to take a test? What does that affect? How does that affect their academic identity, their self-esteem, or actually their learning outcomes? Well, the first, for the first several questions, no one really knows because, once again, we've just done this to students and nobody has really carefully evaluated what's happening. Most people in my field, uh, I believe, still uh, oppose any kind of high-stakes testing for very young children. Uh, first of all, the tests aren't very reliable at that age, but also it's just, it's just uh, a kind of pressure that they don't need. I don't think there's one answer for older students. Uh, students who test well may very well enjoy it, uh, uh, but my concern is the one thing that has been well documented, which is that this creates an illusion of learning, and that illusion is really quite striking. It's not uncommon uh, to find that the gains on the tests used for accountability are three to six times as large as the real increases in student performance. No, you say no one's checking the tests. Who should be in charge of the accountability? 
Well, no one is in this system. That's another thing that's kind of peculiar about the way we do it. Dan, would you like to take accountability right now? <laughs> it would be very hard. The system is set up so that all the adults want the same things. The adults starting from the teacher at one end and ending with a state superintendent at the other. Everybody wants higher test scores. And so the people who are writing tests really have no incentive to say, well, you know, if you give us more money and more time, we could develop tests that would be somewhat more resistant to these problems. There's no incentive to do that. And for that matter, even though I'm working on precisely that problem, trying to design tests that are harder to game, that's a small part of the problem. The bigger problem is that even very well-constructed well tests are not sufficient by themselves to evaluate the quality of schools. Can you tell us a little bit about to our listeners who may not know this, what goes into the design of one of these tests? Who is actually putting it together and what are the rigors that go through it before it actually goes to the students? They're almost invariably constructed by, by uh, testing companies that do this uh, as the primary source of, of revenue. The technical guidelines for constructing them are fairly well established. Uh, the problem is that the guidelines that have been established for constructing tests were designed in an era where tests were not used for accountability. So for example, there are technical reasons why under low stakes conditions it's desirable to make a test similar from year to year. It makes it easier to get estimates of change, for example. Under high stakes conditions that can be disastrous because it gives teachers and students an opportunity to cut corners. Dan, what can parents do right now, having heard this EdCast, they're not teachers, they're parents. What can they do in terms of their school, their child, to help understand and to help improve and to help reform the testing? Frankly, I don't think there's much parents can do. Uh, the system is uh, very rigid. The costs to states of not following the, the same path are very, very high. And so a district, for instance, a district superintendent doesn't have the prerogative anymore to say, well, this is not the right way to test kids. I want to test kids a different way and evaluate teachers a different way. They just simply don't have the freedom to do that. I think teachers can make their voice, uh, student parents can make their voices heard if they see inappropriate test prep. I would urge parents to go in and watch and see how kids are being prepared, particularly for the two or three months before the, the school year or the testing date, rather, and complain if it's not what they want to see. And can you just remind the parents what inappropriate test prep is in the sense of the context of this? Sure. I mean, if what, what I used to look for when I went into classrooms uh, for my kids, let's take mathematics, for example. I went in to see whether kids were doing demanding work, cognitively demanding work. I wanted to see them engaged in their work. I wanted to see them enthusiastic. I wanted to see them taking risks with their answers. I didn't want to see them doing drills focused on things that look just like test items. And that's what, unfortunately, many parents are going to see if they go into school, in some cases for more than three months, but certainly the last uh, two or three months before testing. And I think the one other thing parents can do is to insist that um, they want information about their schools other than just test scores. And to teachers involved in this system, who do they go to? Their principal and say, I, I'm not happy being part of this system, or they just have to suck uh, it up? They have no choice. They really have no choice. And that's one of the things that I find really distressing uh, if a teacher has a choice now between what they, well, I'll, I'll, let me give you a concrete example. A, a, a congressional aide who used to be an inner city Philadelphia teacher said to me a couple of years ago, this is almost verbatim, I know that what we were doing wasn't appropriate, but how else were we going to get test score increases as fast as we had to get them? And she said, I knew, I, I knew of better things I should have been doing in class, but I simply couldn't. And that's what's happened. Basically, if you're in a high scoring school, you can often 
have the, take the luxury of saying, all right, we'll devote a little time to the test and, as one of my son's teachers put it, then get back to teaching. If you're in a low-scoring school that has to make a huge amount of progress to meet the standards of No Child Left Behind, you simply have no choice. The other thing that I find very distressing, and this is just anecdotal, I haven't seen a systematic study of this, but people who went into teaching relatively recently, say in the last five or six years, have started to come to me to, to say that the distinction I try to draw, for instance, in classes between appropriate and inappropriate test prep makes no sense to some of them because they have been taught from the beginning that test prep is good teaching. They simply have no other model in their minds. That, I think, could be detrimental for a very long time. Dan, for all of its good and bad, you'd have probably less to research. Would you prefer if just tests did not exist? No, I, I tests used properly are enormously valuable. It's just that no one wants to remember what the people who designed them warned us about years ago. The, there's a wonderful chapter written by, in 1951, by a man at the University of Iowa who was probably the single most influential uh, developer of standardized achievement tests in which he described how they ought to be used and what they can and cannot do. And his argument was that they provide specialized, and his word was supplementary, information about student performance that's enormously valuable or can be enormously valuable to teachers. If you find out, for instance, that your kids are progressing much more slowly in problem solving than in computation, that's a clue. And you might not get that without a standardized test. The problem isn't the test, it's the use of tests. Guess is Dan Koritz. He has a book on this subject called Measuring Up, What Education Testing Really Tells Us. Thanks for appearing on the show. Glad to be with you. This has been the Harvard EdCast, a production of the Harvard Graduate School of Education. I'm your host, Matt Weber. Thank you kindly for listening. The Harvard Graduate School of Education, working at the nexus of practice, policy, and research.